Uh, we got into this second or third division of the Psalms last week, and I think we could see pretty clearly how these things could apply to us. But let me ask a question right off the bat. Is it presumptuous or arrogant or selfish for us to look at these and apply them to our situation and the situation of the church and so on uh, at this time? I think we've covered this ground many times, and in fact, uh, I think it's very obvious from the very beginning of this group, or from even the preaching before it started, in beginning in 96, that we view the prophecies as having first to do with spiritual Israel, the church, and secondarily then to physical Israel, the nations about us, and the Gentile nations as well. But uh, that we always saw, that it was having to do with the nations around and the end times. Uh, we didn't see how clearly it refers first to the church. That's all that's really new about that. So the church applied the end time prophecies to the nations and to some degree the church today. And almost anywhere you go in religion, you're going to find people applying the scriptures, to one degree or another at least, to themselves and to the aids that they're in. So I think we're very aware that scripture is fulfilled over and over, and this latest iteration or fulfillment has to do with the end time for sure. Bear in mind that the early New Testament church were left with the impression by Christ himself that he would return in their lifetime. He didn't say that, but he let them think it. And through the writings of the apostles, it's very clear that they expected him to return within their lifetime. It was only later on that they began to realize that it was further off and that they too would die the death of martyrs, except for John, and that it was further off. Now we see, and I did apply, and one reason I'm saying these things is that... uh, There in chapter 74 and verse 5, I made the comment that that could be a very easy reference to Herbert Armstrong, who lifted the axe to the trees, in other words, began to build a building or a church, and became somewhat famous for that, certainly within the church and even in the world, as he met with different leaders of uh, the nations of the world. But we are now in the end times, and if ever these scriptures applied. They apply now because what we are looking at is the end time or the last fulfillment of most of these scriptures. So I don't feel it is out of line at all, even though the world might say, well, you're just being selfish, or even those in the church, if we read these and apply them not only to ourselves, but even to them, would think we are being presumptuous. But how else are you going to apply it? Now, they may not look at it in quite the same way we do, but the other churches that came off from worldwide or the other groups certainly read the Scriptures and apply them to themselves, don't they? Of course they do. They all do. Maybe not in quite the same slant or direction or way that we are, but they still look at it and if Scripture doesn't apply to you and to me and to them, What's it for? So, I think we can look at these and certainly always bear in mind 
that they have to do with the whole world, they have to do with Israel, but they also have always to do with the church, and the church first and foremost as spiritual Israel. So we saw here that there is a looking forward to a time when these events begin to occur, and in verse 9 of 74 we saw that there is none among us that knows how long. We may know events, we may know things that have to occur soon, but God has never given anyone an ironclad understanding of when exactly they will occur. And many people have tried to predict certain dates, and they've always fallen on their face. So we can only say, soon. (laughs) Uh, That we can see. We see the things happening that the Bible says would be happening in this age, so it's clear that it is very soon. But it is a deep ditch to try to set dates, as even the church did in 72 and 5 and various other times. The last thought in chapter 74 was, Forget not the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those that rise up against you increases continually. I was reminded this morning, I was kind of going down through the news headlines in Google News to see what in the world's going on, and uh, there was one there entitled, Does It Matter If God Exists? I didn't pull it up and read it, but kind of an interesting headline. Uh, with what's going on in the world, does God matter? Is he important? What, is it, what difference does it make if he's there or not? I presume maybe they were implying that even if he's there, he can't do anything about it. This Things are just going to happen the way they're happening. I, I can't put words to that, but that's a common slant. And that may, that article, maybe I'll go back and read it. I don't want to misjudge it, but it was just an interesting headline in any case. But the increase of enemies toward God in his way has certainly increased and increased and gotten worse and worse. And that is happening today. So let's go on into 75 then with that thought in mind. But let's, God, don't forget that enemy or enemies and sin is increasing around the world. Unto you, O God, do we give thanks. Unto you do we give thanks. For that your name is near, your wondrous works declare. So, in spite of the fact that the world is degenerating about us, we need to be looking to God more and more. And that his name is spelled out in the wondrous works of the creation around us, even as Paul said in Romans 1.20. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. Now, we do know that the church is going to become prominent soon, that the leadership of the church, even though hated by all, is going to have great power uh, against the new world order that is coming. They won't overcome it uh, by any means. Christ will do that when he returns. But they will be given great power and protection against it. So... We read in Ezekiel 34 and other places that God is going to grant righteous leadership for the church, not only in the millennium, but even in this latest and last uh, rising up of the church. 
Now, we've had one rising of a true people of God in the end, the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. But it is now scattered and essentially gone. There is one more to arise, the latter temple here in the end, that old men will survive to see. And they will receive the congregation. The remnant will come together, and upright judgment will be given. So we can see how this can apply right now to the situation that we are seeing develop before our very eyes. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. Sounds like Isaiah 24, doesn't it? About how people will be killed uh, in mass here at the end, so that few men are left, as Isaiah 24 puts it. Not everyone killed. But it's the same type of language that Isaiah used, and which Peter used as well, about the heavens and the earth being dissolved. Peter, I hadn't noticed this one before, I can see clearly that Peter was quoting from Isaiah 24, but this is the same language, speaking of the same cataclysmic end-time events. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. Here's something to think about. We're at the time when it is about to be dissolved around us. I said to the fools... Deal not foolishly, and to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Now, isn't that a message that is going to be going out to the world? Don't rise in your vanity, in your ego, and think you're going to rule the world and set up the kingdom of the new world order, or however they're going to say it, their millennium. Isn't this a message that needs to go to them? They are fools to think that they can deny God and set up their own world rule. This is a message directly to them. I suspect it will be read and preached to them, and they're not going to like it. Lift not up your horn. That's a symbol uh, that comes from uh, bulls or uh, animals that have horns that that can do damage. So horn often is used as a typology of warfare or military might. The horn, that which you push with, or that which you can destroy with. Speak not with a stiff neck. Arrogant, proud, stiff-necked. I can butt and push anybody I want to. America is there today, thinking they can whip up on anyone they want. And there is a... There are different groups of people who want to rule the world. And they are vying for leadership right now behind the scenes to see who will come out on top. We know from Daniel that it will be a consolidation that will be of iron and miry clay, that it cannot stand. So somebody's going to be in charge, but there will be politics involved. They will not get along well. They will not have a strong foundation, so the feet are iron and miry clay and will crumble and it will fall. So they're not all together in what they're trying to do, but someone's going to win out and they will all then give their power to that even though they don't like it. They will resent it. And they will still want the power that they missed out on getting uh, from the ones who do take over. But then... Here is a very important statement in verse 6. For promotion comes neither from the east, 
nor from the west, nor from the south. God's throne is in the sides of the north. So it doesn't come from any of those other three directions. It comes from the north, from God. That's where promotion comes from. God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. Now, he can do it in the lives of individuals. He can do it in the lives of the church. He can do it in the lives of the countries, the nations of the world. He is the one who sets up and puts down. It says there in Daniel 4 that he raises up the basest to put over the nations. He is the one that sees to it who the leaders of the nations are, <coughs> including our own, because his purpose is to see it come down and be destroyed, and therefore he has given it the kind of leadership that is very quickly doing that. He makes sure he gets the people involved and in government that will serve his purposes best. So God will promote one sister of the church to lead the remnant and show his power, his authority, and his might through it. We're going to see that happen pretty quickly now because the power of the new world order is getting stronger and stronger. Satan's power is increasing. And at some point, God is going to show his, in a small way, against it and preach against it. And he can promote the leadership that he wants to be there, both in the world and among his people. <clears throat> For in the hand of the eternal there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he pours out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. So, the good wine... He will save for his people. He says to come have wine and milk without money. It will be good. But the dregs, the bad stuff, that at the bottom of the barrel <coughs> is going to be given to the world. And it will not taste good to them. They're not going to like what they have to hear or see or experience from God's people. <coughs> but I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So, the one writing this is as if it's happening to him, but we know it was written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. So, it's from our perspective that the scripture is written. <clears throat> All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off. So, their power, their military might, before this is over, God will cut it all off. But the horns, or the power, the might of the righteous, shall be exalted. So, the wicked will rise, they will be stiff-necked, there will be a, well, I started to say a lone voice, lone in sense of God's church, but two speaking for the most part, that will stand against them. And they will then lose their power, and Christ will come and exalt the horns of the righteous. So, there will be a, uh, and an exchange of power. Satan will be bound. The men who were with him will be destroyed, taken by the nap of the neck, the beast and the false prophet, and thrown into the lake of fire. And God will then give power to rule the whole earth to the saints. Well, that's what this is talking about. In Judah is God known. 
His name is great in Israel. Now, that has to apply first to the church, because only in spiritual Judah, or spiritual Israel, is God's name known and feared. Within this nation of Israel, and the nations of Israel, wherever they may be now, he isn't feared much. And you have titles like, does God make a difference? What does it matter if there is a God? He's old and toothless, I guess. No, it is only among God's people that we see and want his power. In Salem, or Jerusalem, is his tabernacle. It'll only be the only peaceful place really on earth. And his dwelling place in Zion. So Zion and Jerusalem are mentioned together here. They are the two areas that are spoken of frequently in the Bible. And he will be reigning, and Christ will dwell with us there, as he says in Zechariah 2 and 3 and 4. <coughs> there broke he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword, and the battle. So it is going to be from Jerusalem, not Petra, Jerusalem and Zion, that the power of God is shown on the earth. He will break the bows, the arrows, the shield from there. Will give power to his two witnesses to go out against them, and fire will come from their mouths and devour anyone who stands against them. Not only that, but there in, Mal in Micah it says that seven, even eight principal men will come out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. So it's not just two, but more than that. And it is the power of God that is going to come from Jerusalem. Now, is this speaking of the Jerusalem in the Middle East? or the original and true Jerusalem and Zion. Because we know the beast power is going to take over that Jerusalem. I heard today the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers both have homes, and this is documented, in that Jerusalem over there. They've already set up camp there. That's where the world government will be centered, the place where Satan truly dwells, because where would he be except in his counterfeit city, of God's way. He can't rule in the true Jerusalem, God's church, and God's end-time people will be there. He will rule from the counterfeit Jerusalem, and a counterfeit Judah is where he will rule from. And they're setting up to do that right now. And from Jerusalem and Zion will he break the arrows of the bow. It's not just in the, at the beginning of the millennium but even before. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The mountains of prey are who? Well, Christ is going to prey upon all the governments of the world and the population of the earth. They'll become the hills of prey that will take months to bury, even in Israel, true Israel. And he's more glorious by far. He will heap their bodies up they're the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. All those who have been so braggadocio about their powers and their strength and the rulership they will create on the earth, and which they're doing at the moment, they won't be able to find their hands. The hand is used as a signal of warfare as well. You lift up your hand against others. 
They won't find any power, any hands against God. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a deep sleep, death. Though even you are to be feared, and who may stand in your sight when once you are angry? Let's hearken to the past. Who stood against the waters of the Noatian deluge? Who stood against the power of God in the land of Mitzrayim when he brought Israel out? And the waters washed the sons of Ham away. And he is getting angry again. And he is about to unleash that anger. You did cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. That's an interesting statement right there in verse 8. You did cause judgment to be heard from heaven. Now we're going to hear sounds of the trumpets and various things that occur, but I find it interesting that over the last year or so, there have been more and more reports coming in from all over the earth of strange sounds, rumblings and roarings, and almost like violent explosions, and they can't find out what's causing it. There are all kinds of speculations going on. There's been a town in Wisconsin, Clinton I think it is, that's been in the news the last week or two or three, whatever it's been, and they can't determine what's causing that roaring and rumbling and, and explosions. It's not earthquakes. They say there's no such seismic activity shown. They're speculating maybe so low level it doesn't get on the Richter scale. Uh, there are others who are saying it's sounds from the heavens that God is angry, and there's all kinds of speculation, electro, electromagnetic fields and so on. But no one knows. I was sitting with a couple of others down at Barbara's house so a month or so ago, two months, whatever it's been, and we heard some rumblings and roarings here. Uh, it was not real loud like explosions, but more like a distant rumbling and roaring that is unnatural, never heard before. But there it was. And the news was full of this. And the Internet is just a jangle with it from all over the earth, different reports of it. Everybody's got their idea. Well, who knows? Interesting statement here that God's judgment is heard from heaven. Is it some of the stirrings that are leading to this huge judgment that is about to hit? I don't know. Just an interesting comment right here as we're in the throes of it on a worldwide basis. And it's in the news. <clears throat> when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, Selah. Think about that one, he's saying. Just pause a moment. God is arising in judgment now. And his judgment will soon come on the earth. And it says to save all the meek of the earth. Well, that's something that has not happened yet, has it? No, it has not. But he is going to destroy the wicked, and he will save the meek. And how many are meek? How many are willing to submit to God's law, his statutes, his judgments, his ways? Not very many. Those are the ones he's going to save. Most of the rest will die. And the ones who are left after World War III will have become meek. And then he will set his hand to save them 
through Christ Emmanuel and his bride who will come down to rule the earth. So this is end time, not uh, end time language if ever there is any. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remainder of wrath shall you restrain. So he is going to unleash his wrath and it's going to get attention ultimately. But he will restrain the rest. There are places where he says, I will not make a full end of mankind. I will destroy most, but some will survive. So he will cause his anger to be cut short or restrained. Vow and pay to the eternal your God. Make promises to him and keep them. Let all that be round about him bring presents to him that ought to be feared. We heard the sermonette about prayer a few minutes ago. And we need to bring our prayers, our psalms, to sing before God. Those are our gifts that we bring before Him. To Him, the prayers of the saints are like fine incense coming up to Him. It means a lot more to Him than the blood of bulls and goats ever did. That was He was never impressed with that. He had to lay it upon people. Uh, to get their attention. But that's not what he was after. He was after their hearts, their minds, their prayers, their devotion. And that is what he will have, one way or the other. Do you see this earth, this nation, or the church truly repenting and turning to God with all their heart without an awful lot of pain and misery involved? I don't. We have seen the church already go through a lot of pain and misery and affliction and trouble and decimation, and still we have not all turned to God with our whole heart. It doesn't just happen. People don't just go through life and say, well, I think today I'll turn to God. It doesn't occur that way. It comes through pain, through suffering. That's what causes us to bend our knees. So he's saying here, when you see all this stuff start coming down, make a commitment, make a vow, a promise to God, and keep it. And bring Him the presence that He wants to see. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. So only those who fear Him and bring the kind of presence, their hearts, their minds, their prayers, their songs, that's what impresses Him, that's what He wants. But He's going to cut off everyone else. Chapter 77, I cried to God with my voice, even to God with my voice, and He gave ear to me. He emphasizes that. I cried out, I cried out. Not just a passing prayer, but something fervent, Meaningful, strong, repeated, cried out to God, and he gave ear. In the day of my trouble I sought the eternal. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. We face difficulties in this world and in this life, all those things that are happening around us, and now the trouble that our financial situation has brought and our economy, and it affects us all, and the inflation that's coming with it, and the various things that make life difficult are going to get worse and worse. 
That's the time to really get our attention and cause us to turn to God. I remembered God, almost as if, well, I'd kind of forgotten. I wasn't really paying as much attention as I should. I remembered Him and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Not until we are overwhelmed, not until we face difficulty, do we begin to seek. You hold my eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. In other words, God is going to get our attention. Our eyes will be on Him. And we'll be looking to Him for a solution to our problems. We have many illnesses. We have many aging difficulties. We have... uh, various kinds of problems, so that they can almost seem overwhelming at times. But He will get our attention. When we're awake, we'll be thinking of God. And so troubled, don't know what to say. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times, all right? Troubles began to come. I began to remember God, and then I began to think on the things of the past. That record of things that has happened in the past and how God has dealt with people, good and bad, throughout history is right here in this book. I call to remembrance my song in the night. Maybe when things were better, things that we exalted about or wanted to sing about or that exalted the heart and made us feel good, might have remembered those. I commune with my own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Maybe thinking back to when God was new to us, His way was new to us, and exciting, and it became our song in the night. But then that tune began to fade as we became lackadaisical. Will the eternal cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? You and I have had these emotions and these feelings and begun to wonder at times, how long will this go on? How long will the church be separated and knocked down and pushed around? When will it come together? We've come here. We've seen these scriptures. We've gone out of the cities and into the wilderness. We're waiting for God to begin to do some of these things. But even for us who understand, it can become a patience problem. Uh, will, will this ever happen? We could begin to give up or grow tired or weary of well-doing and begin to think, maybe this isn't so. Isn't it nice to have scriptures like this to remind us of where we will be and what we will face so that when if we might have some of those emotions, we know what to do. Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Won't he ever turn his face back to us? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? He said, I'll be angry with you for a short while, didn't he? Several different prophecies. But I won't destroy you completely. And I said... This is my infirmity. I mean, this is where I find myself. This is the sickness and the spiritual condition I find myself in. These are the worries or the concerns that I have. Can there be anything more 
uh, timely right now than this to where we are in the church and the march of history toward the return of Christ. We understand what is about to happen, but what about all those churches of God out there, the different groups who don't know? And they keep thinking we're going to preach the gospel around the world, and that doesn't happen. You know, they might be able to manage to a four to four o'clock in the morning station somewhere, and then they don't really preach the gospel of the kingdom. They do little things about alcoholism or, you know, whatever they might pick for this week. It isn't really preaching the truth of God in the way that it has to be thundered. The two witnesses are going to do that in the tribulation. It's not going to be done now. God has stuffed the lead weight in the church's mouth, per Zechariah 5. The basket has a lead shield put in it, so it can't speak. And what little it does say is not heard by very many, and it is not a very strong message at all. You could hear it, most of it, on almost any Protestant network. In fact, some of them are stronger about prophecy than the church is. By far. <clears throat> and they understand almost as much or more. <laughs> is this going to go on forever? I said, this is my infirmity. This is where I find myself. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. So when things get difficult, it's time to cast back in our mind, personally, of memories we may have of God's intervention and His Word, and even further back into the history of the Bible and of mankind on the earth. I will meditate also of all your work and talk of your doings. Now, that's what he tells us there in Malachi 3, isn't it? But when he gets ready to make up his jewels, he will remember those who spoke often of him, who had him on their minds and in their conversations, So it says, when you find yourself in here, it's time to talk of his doings. Your way, O God, <clears throat> is in the sanctuary. That's the only place it is. The church is his true sanctuary. And he is going to set up that true sanctuary, the spiritual church, in the right physical location of Zion and Jerusalem to then deal with the world. Who is so great a God is our God. Allah? Buddha? No. The true God of creation. You are the God that does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. And He is going to do that. He's done it in the past. He's going to do it again. He is never changing. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So not only of Israel, but more specifically, of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And that's whom he's dealing with here in the end time. He began his church in the end time in Ephraim, and that's where he's going to finish it. Right here. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. The peoples of the earth are known as waters or seas. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. Now, 
the nature, the world around us is groaning uh, and quaking more and becoming more and more unstable. So even the very elements of the physical earth beneath and around us is upset. But the peoples are going to be very, very upset when they begin to see the hand of God working through His small end-time people. It will be very distressing because the whole world will worship the beast except for the very, very select few who are serving God. And they will be the fly in the ointment. The one thing that stands between them and total world domination. Satan will hate it, and the world that he rules will hate it. And the moment that he is cast down from heaven that last time, that is where he's going to go. And the church will have to flee to Zion and be in the place of refuge. From Jerusalem to Zion. Scripture is very clear. Well, you better know where Zion is. You better know where Jerusalem is. That's all I got to say. Well, I ain't all I got to say, but I mean, that's what I have to say about that at the moment. And I think we'll see that proved very shortly, if it hasn't already been. So, the peoples and the earth itself are groaning and are going to be troubled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also went abroad. So the power is going to come from on high, down from God in heaven, and it'll be heard on this earth. The earth trembled and shook. Your way is in the sea, and your path in the great waters, and your footsteps are not known. They don't know how to attribute it to God. They don't know what He does or how He reacts. They'll wonder, what is it? What's going on? You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So he hearkens back to history of what has happened in the past as a uh, forecursor uh, for of what shall come. Give ear, O my people, to my law. So he says right then, all right, when you see all this stuff coming, know it's time to give ear to God's way, to His law. Most people on earth don't recognize God's law, God's law, and those who have read about it have said it's done away with. But this is an end time context we're reading here. It's time to know and to remember the law of God. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Well, which words are those? These in this book. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. It is kind of a parable, isn't it? Something, Christ spoke in parables, he said, to make it hard to understand, so the people would not get it. They wouldn't know what he was really saying. And even the disciples themselves had trouble understanding. Only when he explained did they kind of get it, and only when the Holy Spirit came did they really get it. But even at that Last Supper, they still didn't get it, did they? Well, these things that we're reading right here are a parable to the world. How many people can read through the Psalms and see the end time and what's happening in the nations of Israel and in God's church? Very few. 
How many groups of God's people are you going to hear a sermon like today going through here and seeing how it applies directly, individually, to us and the conditions that we are now seeing in the world? They've not even looked at it that way. Maybe a few here and there, but not very many, I'll guarantee you that. You won't hear these things preached clearly and openly. Not anybody much understands it. It's still like a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. In other words, he'll hearken back to the history of the world and of Israel and be talking about things that are happening today. It is being repeated. And to most, it is just ancient history. To us, we can go back and read it over and over again, the various things God did through the ages, and see that it's happening again today, just like it did back then. So it's no mystery. It's no parable to us. We understand now, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. And didn't Paul and the others say to go back to the Old Testament and see what happened then because it applies to you today? Didn't they preach the Old Testament in the New Testament books? Yes, they did. Quoted from it continually. Paul referred back to it over and over, as did the others. Peter was writing about the end time and referred back to Isaiah 24, and maybe to this one we just read in the Psalms. So they're showing by example that you go back to the past to understand where you are and what's going on and how. And clearly it's speaking of the end time here. Well, they told us about it. Why do you think, and I did a whole series on it, we are to turn our hearts to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. We are to go back and see what they experienced, what they went through, and how they reacted, so that when we begin to go through the same things they went, and Moses and the others, David, when we begin to go through what they went through, we'll know how to react properly. We'll see examples of how they didn't, but more examples of how they did. And the same is true of the apostles. There are fathers as well in the faith and in the past. And we look back to all these things and see what our fathers told us so that we might prepare for what is even now upon us and just before us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Eternal and His strength and his wonderful works that he has done. How can we teach our children how to deal with what is before them if we can't go back and say, well, God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and this is how he reacted here, and he gave blessing here for this, and he cursed for that. Wonderful stuff to show our children because they're the generation that is coming on and need to understand what's happening in the world so that they might be able to miss out on the horror and still be around to grow up, finish growing up in the millennium under the rule of Christ and His bride, which includes us, I hope, to finish teaching even our own children. For He established a testimony in Jacob 
Well, that's what we have, is the testimony of the past in Israel, or Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children. So we have the testimony from the past, our fathers in the faith, and we have the law of God, which they lived by. Now, do you think that's done away with? We're in an end-time context here talking about going back to our fathers of the past and the law of God. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. This is something that is supposed to be turned over generation to generation. That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. What did the last apostle standing, John, say? This is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. After all had been said and done, the Old Testament done, the Old Covenant done, the New Testament, New Covenant instituted, Christ taught and trained His disciples, and the one He was the very closest to was John. The one who might have understood better than anyone else was John. And John said, the love of God is the keeping of the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so on. And he is the one who wrote also the book of Revelation. And the last thing he said, if you take away from the law of God and this word, and he mentions a bunch of the Ten Commandments there, you'll have no part in the kingdom of God. So I don't care how you want to go into Paul and argue about something. God summed it all up through the last standing apostle John. And John wrote it very, very clearly. There is no chance to argue with what John said. You might argue with Paul. But even Peter said he wrote a lot of things hard to understand. So where are we, you know? We're here to not forget the works of God and His commandments. And might not be, verse five of 8, as their fathers, we're to look to our fathers, not the fathers of the wicked. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. And I think you could interject the former temple, the Worldwide Church of God, right here, in which our hearts were not steadfast, and we were somewhat rebellious and stubborn, and clinging to a lot of the ways of this world, and still are. And we still need to turn steadfastly to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. That happened with ancient Ephraim, and we today are in the land of Ephraim. Jeremiah 31 tells us that he has appointed Ephraim as his firstborn. See, through Joseph came the greatest blessings through Ephraim and Manasseh. Of all the tribes even of Israel, they had the greatest blessings. We here have the greatest blessings that any nation on earth has ever had. God gave us the best real estate on earth, the best continent in terms of weather, 
in terms of natural resources, whatever. We have everything we need here. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 8. It would have everything you need. We don't need to import anything. We just do it cause. But we didn't have to. But those of Ephraim are in danger of turning back when things get rough. And that's why he uses this example here. We are in Ephraim today. And we are the firstborn church. Christ was the firstborn of many brethren, and they are, recalled, they are called the church of the firstborn as well. Church of he who was the firstborn, but we are the firstborn of the world <clears throat> to serve God. I think if you put this story together, you can see that the church of God at the end time had to begin in Ephraim. And it began in Oregon and Los Angeles. Pasadena. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had showed them. Marvelous things did He in the sight of their fathers in the land of Mitzrayim and the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, the Red Sea here obviously, and caused it to pass through and He made the waters to stand up like a wall. In the daytime also He led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. Water out of solid rock. you believe that? I do. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. It wasn't just a little bit of water coming out of a rock. There were probably three, four million people there. You've got to have a pretty good stream of water coming out for everybody to even get to it before they die of thirst. It had to have been quite a river of water coming out of the rock. Is it any wonder we have Cascade Falls up here with the water coming right out of the rock, beginning the Virgin River in Zion? What an incredible thing that harkens back to these very words. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run like rivers. Do you ever think of that? How big was the stream of water that came out of the rock when Moses not just spoke to it, but struck it because of their attitude and he finally lost patience? But it had to have been a pretty good stream of water. And it says so right here. <coughs> and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. We've come to the wilderness now. Prophecies told us to. Are we going to provoke him more here, or are we going to satisfy him and make him happy and turn his face to us? They tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Manna wasn't good enough, they wanted meat to eat. Does that mean meat's bad? No, it was their attitude that stunk. And the meat, the quail, began to stink too, didn't it? So God says, all right, you got a stinky attitude, I'll give you meat, but it'll stink. And even the manna itself would spoil if they picked it up on the Sabbath. It wouldn't last till the next day. They were teaching him, or he was teaching them, to receive their daily bread. That's what the manna was all about. 
sustenance, everything we need comes from God. And He'll provide it every day. That's why Christ could preach so clearly, give us this day our daily bread is a prayer that we're supposed to pray. And so that we learn to depend upon Him day by day for what we need. And if our attitude stinks like they did, then we will have to have an attitude adjustment. They tempted God asking for meat. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? They were already getting manna, angel food. There was plenty there for them, but they wanted something different. This isn't good enough for me. I want more. So they questioned whether he could provide a table with meat in the wilderness. Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? And isn't water and manna enough that you would believe in God and trust him? Or does he have to give meat before you're going to become a believer? At what point will we be satisfied that we are God's people and we can trust Him implicitly with our wealth and our health and everything else. When do we come to that point where we can walk by faith as He tells us to walk? The just shall walk by faith, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. And they demonstrated here a very severe lack of faith. Let's put another test on God. Ah, yeah, water. Maybe the rock just split. Yeah, manna. Well, where'd that come from? I don't know. I bet he can't make meat. Not out here in this desert. Want to bet? They just about suffocated in the flock of quail that came in. How many quail were involved? If there were three or four million people there and they were falling in the congregation... And so thick that they couldn't eat them all. That had to have been an awful lot of quail. God says, you want to know? All right, then I'll show you, you of little faith. Therefore, the Eternal heard this, and he was angry. You're not happy with what I give you. You want more. You don't believe me. You don't trust me. That would make him angry, wouldn't it? So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. And this is written to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. We of all people, brethren, must learn to depend upon God, be thankful for what he gives us, and look to him for our daily bread, and not get in impatient unbelieving, untrusting attitudes. Somehow, some way, we have to all, with all our hearts, turn to Him and expect Him to take care of our every need of any kind and believe that He will so do. If we don't come there, we will not receive those blessings. We have to do it. We have to turn loose of the branch and trust him to take care of us. They didn't believe it. 
Though verse 23, He commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent the meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven and by His power He brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. I got a little ahead of myself. As he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations, so did they eat and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. You didn't think I could do it? All right. Here it is. They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths. Water, then manna, then meat. And they still complained and griped. The wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them. I guess the ones that had eaten the most manna and the most quail. He smote. And smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for His wondrous works. What does it take? to get human beings to believe God and that His way is best. Now, He leaves hands off a lot of times, and He has, and He's let Satan rule this world. And we've been part of that, and we've got to come out of that. And we've got to believe Him and not what we see around us. Therefore, their days did He consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When He slew them, then they sought Him. And they returned and they required and inquired early after God. Millions of them died in the wilderness. He smote Israel off and on throughout history. He smote spiritual Israel, the church, today. And still, they don't seek Him with their whole heart. We just don't, do we? But He says, you will inquire early after God. There's a scripture, is it Isaiah, or where is it? It says, well, early you will seek me when all this stuff comes down on you. Maybe in the Nine of Prophets, I don't remember, but it, it's there. And they remembered that God was their rock. We just sang that in the opening of the service. God is my rock, my salvation, my hope. Interesting, you start going through the Psalms and you'll run across one that you just sang. Well, here is one of them. The high God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongues. We'll speak of God, we'll give him lip service, but is it a lie coming out our mouth, or is it sincere and from the heart? For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Isn't that what Jeremiah says? I'll answer you when you seek me with your whole heart. It's back here, too. Neither were they steadfast in His covenant, were fully committed to what they'd said they would do. But He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yes, many a time turned He His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath. He would become somewhat angry, but He would, being God, be patient and merciful and forgiving. That's the kind of God we have, thankfully, or we would all be dead men already by now. That's been quoted several times through the Bible. 
at different times to different people. For he remembered that we were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. We live for a little while on the earth, and we die, and we're gone. And that's what it says there in Isaiah 40 and 41, talking about a voice crying from the wilderness. And what is the message? That we're all like the grass and the flower that withers. This is the message for the end time. And he reiterates that very clearly there in Isaiah 40. We referred first to John the Baptist, obviously, who cried in the wilderness, but at the end time there will be another John the Baptist with the same message. <clears throat> because Isaiah 40 through 45 is an end time message, and the treasures and so on of the, that are given to Cyrus will be given to the church to prove to all mankind that God is God. That has never been done in the past. It is something that is yet future. So Isaiah 44 and 45 are talking about your life and mine in this end time. For he remembers that we're dust. Verse 40, how oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yes, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. In their minds, they limited what they thought he could do, whether it be water or manna or quail or deliverance from their enemies or whatever it might be, they limited God. God might do this, but he can't do that. Does it matter, as I said at the beginning, whether God is alive or not? <coughs> Same type of attitude behind a headline like that. Not only did they limit what they thought he could do, but in so doing, they also limited his ability to bless them and to be happy with them. Because he has to chasten every son whom he loves. And if our hearts aren't right, <laughs> the belt's coming. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. It's hard for each generation, including ours, to apply all these things that he did in the past to different peoples, to ourselves. But that's what he's telling us to do here. Apply it to yourself. Understand what he did. All that stuff that was done back there is written for us. It was recorded because we're going to be going through the same stuff. How he had worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan and had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent different sorts of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them, talking about the plagues on Egypt. He gave also their increase to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts, lightning from the skies that cooked them on the hoof. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. Now, God is the one who brought the plagues on Mitzrayim, but he sent Satan's demons to do the work. 
Just as with Job, he said, Have you considered Satan, my servant Job? Oh yeah, I know him. He's a hypocrite. You give him a little trouble and he'll turn from you and curse you. Well, why don't you go down there and do that? Oh, okay, I'll do that. Now, is it God's hand, but Satan's the one that did the the evil work. And Satan's angels are the ones that did the evil work then. And it's going to happen again that way. God is going to send Satan's demons against this world, and they're going to destroy about 90% and a little more of the people on this earth. Well, about 90% of Israel, a little more, and more than that of the world. So there are only few men left, as Isaiah 24 says. Uh, Verse 50, He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life to the pestilence. And smote all the firstborn in Mitzrayim, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham. But made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain which his right hand has purchased. Now, this was being written from the environs of Jerusalem. The Mount of Jerusalem, the holy hill of God, is the setting for this end-time prophecy. So, when we consider the end-time prophecies then, based on what is said right here, we have to understand that God's people are going to be centered in Jerusalem, wherever that may be. And the word is coming out from there, just like this psalm was written. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's going to do it again like he did back then. We've seen that over and over throughout the scriptures. He brought them right to the edge of the promised land, where their last carcasses died, except for Joshua and Caleb. And then he brought the children in and gave them the promised land, as he had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would do, in spite of themselves. It wasn't they, but their children that went in. Now, thankfully, he does say that this generation in the end will not die out before these things happen. So it's not going to happen exactly as it did then, where just our children go in, but the older generation will go in. It will happen before we disappear. He cast out the heathen before them and divided them in inheritance by line. So they came in and the uh, basically the people of Ham, all those tribes that are mentioned are uh, of Hamitic origin that were in Jerusalem. Interestingly, they can find no evidence whatsoever of black people ever having lived in that Jerusalem or that country in the Middle East. No evidence whatsoever. And yet God says that those peoples were populating, and all those tribes, Hivites, Hittites, uh, Philistines, and so on, were there not only when Abraham came, but when the people went into the Promised Land. Those were the nations and the peoples that they fought. 
Well, if that's the right place over there, why is there not archaeological evidence? We're getting into another subject here, and I don't want to stay on that. We'll get to it at some time in the future in detail. But just a few insights here as we go through the Psalms. It just leaps out at you when you understand. Um. Verse 53, led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. They brought them to the border of the sanctuary, this mountain which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen before them, the tribes that I just mentioned and more, and divided them inheritance by line, or set the survey marks, the, the uh, boundaries, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet, even crossing the Jordan, after having gone through the Red Sea, those people died. Then their kids, he backed even the Jordan up. It was a smaller miracle in terms of actual size of the water, the whole Red Sea, as opposed to the Jordan River. But the children turned back and, un and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. When will people ever learn? They saw their parents grow old and die in the wilderness, even though their shoes never wore out. The things that God had said would happen, happened. They saw it before their very eyes. And then God backed up the river and let them walk into the promised land and caused the walls of Jericho to fall right before them when they marched around it and shouted. And God drove those peoples away from them and they still didn't believe Him. What does it take, brethren, for us to believe Him and to believe that we will be delivered in the wilderness and He will turn it into the Eden of God, like the prophecies tell us. What does it take to get the picture of what God is going to do with His end-time church? What does it take? What does it take for us to believe it with our heart? For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. They married with the peoples of the land and accepted their gods and built groves and altars to Baal. It wasn't the intermarriage that was really the problem. It was the accepting of the gods of those people. God didn't have a problem with Moses marrying the Ethiopian woman. He did not have a problem with David marrying Bathsheba, except that he killed her husband so he could. That was not the big issue. The big issue was anything that turned you from the true God of Israel. That's the real issue. When God heard this, he was angry and greatly abhorred Israel. Divorced her. Cast her aside. Called her the great whore. Why do we have trouble understanding that Israel is the great whore? Ezekiel 16 makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? 
So when we get to Revelation, we think it's the Catholic Church. She's not the great whore that departed from God. She never knew God. But Israel did. We're the ones that forsook Him. So that He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which He placed among men. He originally said His name in Shiloh. And there they worshipped other gods. And He took it away from Shiloh and set it where He originally intended in the first place, in Jerusalem. And delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hands. No wonder, ultimately, he said Jerusalem would be desolate for many, many generations. He gave his people over, over also to the sword and was angry with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given to marriage. Now, that happened in ancient Israel. And is it not happening even in the church today? How many young ladies have prospective husbands? aren't any around, are there? Isn't this true today, even as it was then? Hasn't the church been decimated and destroyed before our very eyes so that these things no longer exist? Isn't it about to happen in our nation where home life is going to be totally disrupted by war and famine and pestilence and slavery? And our young women and our young men that survive are going to be taken into slavery and not be able to marry because they're going to be working seven days a week. And marriage and life as we know it will be gone. It happens first to the church, then to the nation. I'm looking out right now at this happening to us today. The priests fell by the sword. Haven't most of the ministry of Worldwide Church of God been destroyed by this war that has come upon the church? Maybe they're not physically killed by the sword, but certainly spiritually. And aren't the priests or the ministers of the nation about to be destroyed by the sword when our nation is invaded? I think shortly after we invade Iran. I think that's the meaning of Daniel 8. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. You know, why do you cry over something that corrupt? Or maybe you're in such trouble yourself that you don't have time to mourn. Then the Eternal awaked as one out of sleep and like a mighty man that shouts by reason of wine. Isn't that exactly what the other prophecies we've read about, say, the church is going to be taken apart, and then it cries for God to wake up and do His mighty work, and the minor prophets and the major prophets, saying the same thing here, Isaiah 50, 51, Awake, O Lord, come and do these mighty things you've said you'll do. And He smote His enemies in the hind parts. Why in the hind parts? Because that's the only part he can see. They're running. They're not facing him. They'll be running. He put them to a perpetual reproach. Just as ancient Mitzrayim is a perpetual reproach, dying in the Red Sea, so in this end time will it be remembered that God arose and showed his mighty hand. 
And he says, our deliverance there in Jeremiah will be greater than anything that happened at the Red Sea or the Jordan River. Greater, so that we will even forget that it will be so powerful and so mighty. So is he talking about now or not? Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. They gave the greatest blessings, didn't he? He gave the birthright to, first of all, to Ephraim and Manasseh, to Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. That was what he set up originally. But he had Christ born in Judah. And we may be referred to as Israel in the New Testament and to Jacob at times, but primarily as Jews. Christ was born a Jew. And we who are in his church are spiritual Jews, no matter what, our race. That's what he chose. But chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. So that's why he refers to us in Hebrews 12 as Zion and Jerusalem, the church, all in one breath. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he has established forever. He chose David also, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. They wanted a king. They wanted a tall man. They wanted an impressive-looking man physically. But he was a mental midget, Saul. Then God chose a small man, not looked upon, and even his own father said, that's all my sons. That's the only ones he saw that he thought would be, uh, could possibly be king. Well, where's the other one? Oh, you mean little David? Nah, forget him. No, that's what I want to see. God had a totally different view of who should be king of Israel than Israel had. Worked out good. Oh, he took him out from minding the sheepies, if you will. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. The prophecies of the end time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, speak of him sending one like David at the end time, who will hold the sheep and the flock in his arms. And it says, from following the ewes, great with young. I suspect that means in the springtime, because the ewes had their lambs in the spring. So, yes, David followed the ewes, and he helped birth the lambs. But this is an end-time prophecy. So, why does it say in the Song of Songs that Christ will come to his bride in the springtime when the turtle dove begins to coo in the land? He says in Joel and other places, he will bless his people in the first month. The month we just entered this year. It doesn't say which year, but he just says which month. There are many, many references that indicate springtime. That's when he delivered them from Mitzrayim, is it not? Passover time. So there is that record in the past. And he himself died in the first month at Passover time which, and was resurrected, which began our deliverance. Holy Spirit came to the others at Pentecost, but the actual beginning of deliverance occurred in the first month. So we have 
much evidence that indicates that in the end time as well, there are some monumentous things will happen in the first month. Uh, and he brought him to feed Jacob his people. He says that's going to happen again. Someone with the spirit and attitude and mind of David. And Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. That's mentioned there in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, which have been used a lot to castigate the ministry of Worldwide Church of God here at the end. And most of what has been said about the ministry is echoed there and certainly is a parallel. And that indeed is what it's talking about, is the ministry that we had, and I was part of it, that didn't do it right. And that's got to be straightened out. And that's what he's talking about right here. This is not about history. This is about the future. This is about prophecy. So we have these things to look forward to in the very, very near future. Well, let's stop there then for today.